Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm joined by Terry Fakes. We are back with our Difficult Texts series, answering questions that people have. And we have gotten some really tough ones that have been emailed or texted in. Uh, This one, I think, is hands down the most difficult parable in the Bible, and one that I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on. Um, We thought the Ten Virgins was a tough, tough parable and not very preached on. This one is definitely tougher than that one. And I know I have not heard a sermon on it. Have you? No, I don't think so. I think this one is tricky and it it lends itself to a negative interpretation, which we're very uncomfortable with. So I think this was a great submission by a listener. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is only told here in Luke chapter 16, and it is called the parable of the dishonest manager, which I think is slightly misleading as to what the point of this parable is. So we're just going to read it and get a fresh look at it. And then we're going to dive in. So I'll start in verse one of chapter 16. And Jesus said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be a manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. The one who is faithful with very little is also faithful with much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest with much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you what is that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So the way I always like to start these out is giving a little bit of an overview, but also painting the picture of what specifically is difficult about this text. Well, you know, the thing that stands out to me and where if you're listening to this story, it takes a sharp left turn that you don't see coming. So you you see the dishonest manager. He's getting ready to get fired. And Jesus kind of brilliantly takes you into his head, into his thought process as he says to himself, oh, what will I do? You know, I can't dig and, you know, I don't want to beg. And, and so then he decides, well, I'll just uh, write down my master's debts and these people will be beholden to me and maybe I'll get another job or they'll take care of me or something like that. But where the left turn comes is in verse eight, where it says the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And you don't see that coming. You think, oh, the master was furious, you know, at the dishonest manager and filed charges against him or something, but instead he admires his shrewdness in taking care of himself. And I think the difficulty in this parable, Cole, is as Jesus tells it, 
kind of the implicit assumption as he's telling it, because you don't expect this, is that maybe Jesus also applauds the man's shrewdness in his dishonest dealings. That seems to me to be, you know, maybe what is confusing about this parable at first look. Yeah, the first part of the difficulty is certainly figuring out who the master is supposed to be in this parable. And if indeed the master is Christ, or if the master is God, as that's the case in several other parables, is uh-huh. God praising this dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for his dishonesty? And then the second thing that I think is difficult about this is what exactly is the manager doing when he goes and gets the, the people who owe a debt to mark down their debt? The third thing would be, once you figure those two things out, what is being applied here? So what what could possibly be being applied to a Christian from a lesson effectively in shrewd dishonesty uh, put best? You know, if I were to pierce down and leave the dishonesty out for just a second, let's just pause on the dishonesty for a minute. What is this manager doing? He is making use of his short-term resources. I mean, he's only going to have the job for a short amount of time. He's making use of what he has at the moment to take, uh, to prepare a better future for himself. It seems to me that leaving aside the dishonesty for just a moment, that's kind of the crux of this, Mm -hmm. is using what you have now to prepare a future, a secure future. Right. Yeah, I think that's going to be a big part of interpreting this parable is what exactly is being praised will end up determining what exactly we think the lesson is here. Right. And uh, I don't know that the dishonesty is being praised. Uh, I think the shrewdness is being praised. So (laughs) maybe let's come through here and give a little deeper explanation as to what's going on. Yeah, look at verse nine. Uh, this you and I have talked about this a little. This is very tricky, but it make it turns the corner just a little bit to make a bit of an application. And Jesus says, then he turns to the back to the disciples. He says, "I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth." Okay, that's clearly some kind of short-term temporal statement, so that when that wealth fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. It seems like Jesus is starting to make that application of somehow the use of your temporal goods can affect your eternal dwellings. But that sentence is a very difficult sentence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if we go back to the very beginning of this this parable, so you have what wouldn't have been very uncommon in the ancient world. You You have a steward in a wealthy person's household. And by household, we don't just mean uh, this is their butler. We we mean kind of a mix between a big agrarian ranch and right. a family office that we would consider now for very wealthy people. And this rich man has within his household businesses, probably livestock, maybe other servants. And this manager is in charge of running the house, investing the money, overseeing the different businesses. And apparently, and we don't know exactly what he's been doing, but apparently he has been either uh, squandering or siphoning off or in some way wasting the manager's money. And Mm -hmm. And I think this actually just sets the groundwork for the parable itself. So what we need to, what we need to take away from the beginning and the reason there's not a lot of specificity is you have a situation where 
there's been a person who's about to be fired. They are on a very short time frame. They don't have any good prospects. I mean, this person says, I, I'm not strong enough to dig, do manual labor, and my pride is, is keeping me from sitting on the side of the road begging. So let me use what I do have in the time that I have. So then we get the description where I think the lessons that we start to draw actually starts. I think the praising really starts for this person in verse three or in verse four, where now that the person has, is going to be fired and it's not really a great person anyway, because they've been cheating their master, they mm -hmm. decide, what am I going to do? So they go to the debtors, the people that owe them money, and essentially he starts cutting the debts. This is something that commentators are really split on. There's actually a couple of different ways to assess what's going on here. The first one would be, is he effectively just engendering himself to these debtors by cutting their debts? And so mm -hmm. he's going to start up his own firm after this, and he's hoping that these people are going to be his clients because right. he did them well in their last business relationship. That's one way to read this. The other way to read it would be to go back into the Jewish law and see that usury was forbidden for Jews. And what that means is you're not supposed to charge exorbitant interest on debts and products and services. And in fact, among Jews, uh, you really aren't supposed to be charging interest at all. Right. So what they would do instead of charging interest is they would just inflate the price of whatever it is that they were buying and selling. Right. Uh, so, you know, if the good itself only cost, you know, $50, then they would go ahead and charge a hundred dollars as interest and they'd let them pay it out over time effectively. So it's not the most sophisticated way to get around the law, but it's something that people commonly did. It's just, let's just mm -hmm. raise the price. And that way we won't charge any interest. It's just a very expensive transaction. Right. So it's possible what this servant is doing is he is cutting out the usury and the interest from the price. So he's, he basically goes to these people and he says, I'm going to give this to you at cost, as opposed to what we were charging, which has that interest built in. And the reason that you have different uh, dollar amounts or different measures here is because oil versus um wheat have different expirations. And so you probably would charge somebody over a different amount of time for these two things. And so one of them, he cuts it by 50%. One of them, he cuts it by 20%. Uh, but he's basically taking out that interest charge. So th that's two different ways to read this. They come to a, a similar conclusion. Uh, it's all about how, how much you think is going on in the background here. What's your take on that? Yeah, I tend to lead toward the uh, former, and that is that he's not playing a complicated game with the interest, although that's possible. That would make him an even shrewder manager, if you think about it from that point of view. But the fact that the uh, master commends him either way says that the point of the parable that Jesus is making is admiration for how he's using what he has, despite the fact that it's unrighteous. Where it turns for me is down in verse 11. I think Jesus recognizes the fact that he is dishonest, and he's not recommending that we do dishonest things. But he turns it in 11, he says, "If then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, meaning with the things that you have here that is subject to being used so poorly, and who will entrust to you the true riches? 
So in other words, I think he's not, I don't think he's endorsing the dishonest use of wealth. He's just pointing, making the pointed question to you and me. How are you using the things that you have here? Are they being invested for the future, for eternal purposes? Have you been faithful with those things? He just use happens to use something that's eye-catching as an example, and that is the dishonest manager. Do you think it's a case of reasoning, as the Jews often did, from the lesser to the greater, from one extreme to another, perhaps? Yeah, I think that's one of the only ways to make sense of the first part of this difficulty. Who is the master? What's the situation in the background? I don't tend to think here that the master is either Jesus or God. I think this is really just a story about a manager because mm-hmm. I, I think it's not just a dishonest or, or, or the uh, rich man and the manager. I tend to think it's a case of dishonesty for both of them. It's interesting right. that they use unrighteous wealth in several places. I, yes. I wonder if the master's wealth has been gained dishonestly. So that that's the only reason I think there's a strong argument for the usury part of this is they were mm-hmm. effectively scamming people or trying to skirt the law anyway. So much right. of what you would see somebody like Zacchaeus as a tax collector doing is charging more, keeping the extra. I, I, I'm not convinced that both the rich man and the manager are not involved in an unrighteous, unjust scheme. On top of that, the unjust manager is scamming his unjust, rich employer. So I'm I'm not saying that's the only way to read it, but I'm not convinced that that's not the case. That this whole thing is an unjust enterprise, because that makes that makes Jesus' warnings look even uh, more potent for Christians. So I think the lesser to the greater involves you have this unjust scheme, and in the midst of that. You have a person who is not a good person, not involved in a good thing, can still teach us a lesson about shrewdness in the same way that you have the parable of the unjust judge, for example. You have a judge who doesn't respect God or man, doesn't do justice, but you have a widow who pleads with the judge constantly, and the judge finally decides to get the widow off of his case He's going to give her justice. This, this is a similar parable because the uh, the message of that parable is if a person as unjust as that judge for the wrong reasons will right. give justice, how much more will God give justice? Right. So then the translation here would be if this unjust manager who was part of an unjust enterprise knows how to be shrewd with what he has when his back is against the wall, how much more? Should Christians who have so much more at stake and who are so much less dependent on money than these people are be wise about how they steward their money? I think that's the lesser to the greater argument. Yes. You know, your thought that you have that nobody in this parable has clean hands, I think is probably true. And William Hendrickson in the New Testament commentary series has a line that I thought was really good. He says, would that all believers were as clever in spiritual matters as these crooks seem to be in temporal matters. Right. And that that is what you're saying, is that if we were as, as ingenious in spiritual things for good purposes as they were at getting around the law, uh, you, you see that lesser to the greater. How much more should we be faithful than they? I think that's I agree with that. This is not an allegory. In other words, I think it's a mistake to cast Jesus or God as the master. I think you're right. He's telling a story. 
drawing a lesson and saying, well, if they can do this with unrighteous wealth, how much more should we be doing with eternal things? It's right. a powerful lesson when you think about it that way. Yes, and, and this isn't the entire message of the parable, but I think this is the easiest part of the parable to apply. Is mm-hmm. this, this person, when push comes to shove, they hatch a plan, they get after it, they go out and figure out a way to provide for themselves, to set themselves up for success in the future. And the key line, and we're going to come back to this, uh, and, and this is something I just noticed as we were talking about this, but the key line is when he summons his master's debtors and has them cut down their debts, uh, he's doing it so that they will welcome him into their house afterwards. So he's preparing for a future with what he has right now. That's one of the key things. Yeah. And so I think this is the easiest part of the parable to apply because it's a straight line from if that person is willing to do that in that context with that future prospect, why are we not more intent and insistent and creative and resourceful about a much more certain, much greater future? And I would, I would say it this way. A lot of us spend a lot of creative energy and time and effort on things that are of temporal importance, but not necessarily of eternal importance, while we spend almost no creative energy on the things right. that are of, of spiritual importance. So I would say it this way. How often do you engage all of your intellect and your connections and uh, your drive at work? or in a hobby or something like that, where you're thinking of solutions and you're going to great lengths and sacrificing and getting advice and doing all these things uh, for your job or for a hobby or something else. And then when it comes to your spiritual life, the first roadblock you hit, you're done. So, you know, for example, you'll overcome a million obstacles to finish a project at work. But if something comes up and you sleep in a little bit, you're, your Bible reading is done for that day, or you don't really like praying. So you don't do it. Uh, You know, you you can go and get classes and practice your golf swing, but when it comes to memorizing scripture, it's just so difficult that you just give up on it immediately. And I'm not saying this to shame people. I'm just saying, I think this is part of what Jesus is saying is it's, it's so much easier for us to use our shrewdness and our creative energy towards temporal things because we see the immediate result. Uh, Sometimes they're more fun. And uh, we use hardly any of that for spiritual means um, and for spiritual ideas. Yeah, that's convicting. And and it's true. We need to hear it. It's almost as though you read this and you realize that if the manager had been as shrewd and applied himself to managing his master's money as he was to securing his future, he probably wouldn't have lost his job. Yeah, and right. that, that's that's a really good point. Is to, you know how persistent and and how much do I use my talents on spiritual things, and that that speaks something to preparing the reality of the future. Do I live mm-hmm. with the with eternity in mind? Is another way of saying it. Yes, our and our society just on a whole is very creative at coming up with new ways to sin. And as a church, I would say we are not very creative in developing new ways to live godly lives. And Jesus wants mm-hmm. to flip that on its head and say, you should, be, you should be eager and thinking about and developing new ways 
to live a godly life because you do that in other ways. So you've been entrusted with these temporal things and you're turning a profit. Now, how much more should you turn a profit on spiritual things? And as the first part of this parable, I think that's, like I said, I think that's pretty easy to apply. It's very convicting. Mm -hmm. It's hard to hear. We have to sit back and think about, okay, how might I take that to heart and remedy that in my own life? But that part is pretty easy to apply. The second part of this parable, and what I think is more difficult, is once you get past verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. That's kind of the part we've applied now. Mm-hmm. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. That's that's what I think that part is saying. Verse 9, though, as you mentioned, as I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. This seems like it's taking a step further and at the same time gets a little bit more confusing. What do you think this part is saying? Well, I'll tell you, give you my first take on this is if let's say I've got a million dollars to invest. I and, and again, I'm not condemning anything, but here's just a stark example. I could take that million dollars. I could put it somewhere to make me, you know, a 10 percent rate of return, let's say. And a year from now, I have one point one million dollars or I could take that money and I could go alleviate the poverty or the suffering of people. And I could, quote, make friends with those who aren't good investments, end quote. And and I think the idea there is, how will I invest the things I've been given? I'm not saying you should never invest your money and get a good rate of return, but I'm saying, are we characterized by investing in the people Jesus invested in? you know, the least of these, if you will. How much investment am I making in them? Because those might be the friends that will welcome me into eternal dwellings. That's my first blush on that, Cole. What would you, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's right. Because the dishonest manager is lowering the debt of the people who are debtors to his master so that they will receive him later into their homes. Mm -hmm. And the, the analogy then is, we should make friends for ourselves. We we should essentially go and do right by people who owe a debt so that they will receive us into the eternal dwellings, into heaven later. So we should be thinking about how do we use our money, our wealth, even our unrighteous wealth, to go and invest in people, gospel causes, missionary efforts, so that those people who become Christians is the implication here. Those people who become Christians will welcome us into heaven later. Yeah, I I can't help but think about, for example, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. So at the end of that story, you know, Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom in heaven and the rich man's in hell saying, man, I really should have made some different decisions. But just a thought experiment with me. What if the rich man had said, you know what, pick that guy up and let's get him some medical hair and bring him in and I'm going to get him on his feet and get him well nourished and let's see if we can find him a job. Now, what's that scene look like? That looks like the the poor man, the beggar, say, you know, here comes the rich man into heaven and he says, friend, you know, I'm glad that you're here with me. You know, that idea of there are going to be people then to welcome you later. So yeah, when you were talking, I was thinking about translating the Bible into other languages. How do you know what that investment pays off as? I mean, it's no credit to us, mm-hmm. it's credit to God, but what a great investment. And, you know, sending money to alleviate poverty in children's uh, health and, and you know, any number of things that we could be doing with our money that doesn't provide any immediate return 
does seem to fall under this rubric to me. Yeah, I think if you zoom out and you look at the context of this parable a little bit, uh, you see that right before this parable, you have the parable of the prodigal son, who is also about spending your money in the wrong way and then getting your priorities right, in, right. In, with all the parties involved. Then you have the parable of the dishonest manager. Then you have the rich man and Lazarus, another parable about the right use of money. Then after that, you have a little bit in 17 before you come back in chapter 18 to the topic of uh, the parable of the persistent widow, the Pharisee and the tax collector, and the rich young ruler. All of these stories, and Luke, of all the Gospels, Jesus and Zacchaeus actually is right after that. Um, All of, of all the Gospels, Luke is the most intent on teaching lessons about money, using our money the right way. Rich people, poor people, people like Zacchaeus, who was a rich person, gave his money away. Um, This is a strong theme, and this is the part of the gospel where you get very concentrated teaching about how to use wealth. But all the teaching about how to use wealth is, at its heart, about getting our priorities right, using wealth as a tool for the kingdom, for the work of God, as opposed to for our own enjoyment, out of our own corruption, out of our own greed and selfishness. So this is this fits with the overall section that we're looking at in the Gospel of Luke, is there are a high concentration of stories about money. They're not all about money. They're at the heart of it. They're all about the heart. Right. And yeah. then the, the next level would be, and if your heart changes, the way that you use your money will change as well. I agree. And and again, a corollary to that is it's not about the impact of the money. The amount of money doesn't make any difference. It's the faithfulness with what you have that matters. And so this applies to all Christians, not just people who are well off or have a lot of disposable income. It's the faithfulness in what you have, whether it's great or little. Right. Because that and that makes sense of what Jesus says next is comparatively in this life, what you have is very little, whether you are right. a multi-billionaire or you don't have two pennies to rub together. This sphere, this this earthly life is very small compared to eternity. And so what you do with the little you have now compared to what you could be given then is what matters. He who's faithful with a little will be given more. He who is not faithful with a little, even that will be taken away. Right. Exactly. So the way that Jesus ends this parable, teaching on this parable is really instructive. No servant can serve two masters for either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. When you come full circle, this brings you back to the point that what is there in the shrewdness of the manager is he has priorities and he has initiative and he has a thought pattern that the manager praises. It's not his dishonesty that's being praised. It's what he did because of what his dishonest, because of the situation his dishonesty put him in. When his back was against the wall, when he was desperate, he enacted a great shrewd plan. How much more we who are not in that situation, who have a certain future, who have our priorities straight, should we be able to love God and utilize our money for kingdom purposes? I agree. You know, one thing uh, kind of on a tangent here, but one thing you did while you were talking about that, which I think sometimes uh, I know that our listeners probably are 
aware of the idea of getting the context of what's happening here. And, you know, a lot of these parables are self-contained in that that parable itself stands by itself. But you were flipping through and looking at the broad context. You know, you're looking at chapter 17. You see Rich Man and Lazarus later in chapter 16. But that's not a bad idea. The headings in your Bible aren't inspired, but they're kind of useful. And it's not a bad idea to flip back a couple pages, flip forward a couple pages and see, you know, what you did was painted a picture that we're actually in uh, in the midst of a number of things about money. And I think that's a helpful technique. And it just occurred to me that maybe everybody doesn't do that, but it's really handy just to flip a couple pages either way in your Bible and read the headings. It gives you a sense of the broader context. Definitely in the Gospels, Jesus is teaching on certain topics. The Gospel writers are grouping stories together on topics. You got to remember this is a these were meant to be read originally out loud. And so you're hearing something repetitive over and over in these three chapters, how to use money wisely. And they're kind of hammering that point home by giving you story after story after story. That can be hugely helpful in understanding the point of a small paragraph like this in a larger context of what's going on. Yeah, I was recently reading Matthew 13 and it uh has seven kingdom parables in that chapter. And that's why it's a chapter is it's kind of grouped together that text. But it's really helpful to realize that when you read uh, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman worked into a loaf, that's actually grouped with seven parables about the kingdom. So there's a, a big picture view being given to you. So that idea of context, I think, is really useful. And I appreciate you bringing that out in this discussion. Yeah, I guess as a closing remark, one of the takeaways of these difficult texts that we're doing is not just that now you would know how to interpret this text, but that you would be better at reading all texts. Right. And uh, so take the techniques of these conversations and start applying them to other texts. Go into the background when it demands that. Go into the context when it demands that. Think about uh, each of the words and phrases and, and parts of something like a parable. And uh, just remember the fact that you can always press an analogy too far. Uh, but what are the basic salient points that Jesus begins to apply and how can you make all of it make sense? Because our goal is not just that we would understand this passage, it's that we would be better Bible readers in general. And so you and I both are working on that, trying to become more sensitive to the way the text wants to be read, uh, better readers in terms of big biblical themes and tying right. into those, more consistent in the way that we see the character of God, the role uh, that some of these blocks of teaching play and informing us about God. These are all great techniques to become better Bible readers. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.